Good afternoon and welcome to Midday Moms. This is Dorothy Polarski, and I'd like to welcome each and every one of you that are signing on to today's fantastic, fantastic uh, Midday Moms interview with a remarkable, remarkable author and uh, speaker. I'd like to welcome Layla Miller. And Layla, where are you from? I didn't even ask you exactly where you're from. (laughs) So I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, so hot desert climate. And um, I'm pretty much a native Arizonan, so it's, it's okay. Good, to, good. So, good to be here with all the Canadians. Yeah, and we we do have actually quite a few um, moms that join us from you know different states. And for those of you that are signing on, I always encourage you, if you would, in the chat box, to say hello, to tell us where you're from. Uh, Hi, Claude. Uh, Claude, where are you from? I always love telling everyone that Claude is actually from Dubai and she's a regular uh, that attends our sessions. So uh, we're really hoping that she'll start a Catholic moms group uh, in Dubai. Nelsie, one of our mother's group leaders from St. Benedict's in Milton. Welcome, Nelsie. A very, very important team member in our ministry. So some of you know about our ministry. Some of you don't know about our ministry. Maybe some of you are here for the very first time. Again, my name is Dorothy Polarski. I'm the founder of a ministry. I always say it's three words, really easy. Google it, catholicmomsgroup.com, catholicmomsgroup.com. We are faith partners with the Archdiocese of Toronto, and we are on a mission to revive the vocation of motherhood. And we do so primarily by helping parishes start Catholic moms groups. Um, We have helped start, gosh, about 55 Catholic moms groups so far. We started, first of all, in the Archdiocese of Toronto. COVID pandemic turned out to be a bit of a blessing because then we put all of our materials online. And now we have Catholic moms groups in the North Pole, in Minnesota, in Mississippi, in Ohio. So it's just been a real exciting development. So a big, big warm, oh, Tara Barco, hi from Our Lady of Peace. Um, Yeah, Anya Wilkowski from Kitchener, a big warm hello. Um, Very excited to see you here. I'm going to take a few minutes now just to show the ministry video um, because we are hoping to start more Catholic Moms groups and we hope that you're going to be inspired by today's uh, interview and that you're going to say, yes, I'm putting my stake in the ground at my parish. I'm going to go on a mission to revive the vocation of motherhood and I am going to start a Catholic moms group. So uh, be patient with me as I screen share, because sometimes there's a little bit of learning that I'm still doing. Here we go. Come Holy Spirit. There we go. Here is our ministry video. Mothers. By our very nature, we are nurturing, loving caregivers. We are social beings made for friendship and community. We are also spiritual by nature, made by a loving God to know him and love him. 
and to pass this love of our Catholic faith on to our children. But right now, many mothers feel overextended, distracted, and exhausted. Though as Catholics, we have the community of our church, many mothers attending Mass could not name the mom sitting next to them in the pew they share. Community and support among Catholic mothers is desperately needed in this hectic and chaotic culture. Your parish needs you to bring these moms together. Hi, my name is Dorothy Polarski. I'm the founder of Catholic Moms Group. We at Catholic Moms Group are on a mission to revive the vocation of motherhood. We exist to bring together like-minded, faith-filled mothers who crave community and are focused on spiritual growth, Catholic teaching, and fellowship. Can you imagine a thriving, engaged mothers group at your parish? A group of moms in love with their Catholic faith, ready to serve other mothers no matter what stage of motherhood they're at. Can you imagine what a difference that would make at your parish? Starting a mother's group, it's not rocket science, but working with a team who's done it before and who's done it dozens and dozens of times sure does help. The Catholic Moms Group membership site is an online community that offers training, resources, and dozens of tools for parishes to help them start a mother's group quickly and efficiently. We're here to provide you with a clear path to launching a Catholic Moms Group at your parish. All of our materials are 100% Catholic. We have clearly laid out meetup plans for both moms groups and toddler groups. We are obedient to the magisterium of the Catholic Church. We have created dozens of tools that are going to save you time and energy. And besides that, we love our Blessed Mother. We constantly turn to her for her intercession. You can make a huge impact in your parish, so join us. We are revolutionizing the way parishes start mothers' groups by providing parishes with a Catholic mothers' group starter kit and by nourishing and training a community of Catholic mothers' group leaders across the world. It's time to start a mothers' group at your parish. Join us today. We are hoping that one of you here will feel the spirit calling you to start a Catholic moms group. Um, I have a great privilege and honor um, today to introduce you to Layla Miller. She is a revert to the Catholic faith. Her and her husband, Dean, have eight children and several grandchildren. She worked in advertising before becoming a wife and a stay-at-home mom. She has been widely featured on Catholic television, radio, and in print. And her books, Primal Loss, The Now Adult Children of Divorce Speak, and Raising Chaste Catholic Men, and the book we will be talking about today, Made This Way, How to Prepare Kids to Face Today's Tough Moral Issues 
and seek to apply the church's timeless teachings on marriage, family, moral education of children. Welcome, Layla. Thank you, Dorothy. I'm so excited to be here with you. This is the topic that energizes me, so <laughs> hopefully I won't go off too crazily. As we talk. Uh, yeah, I know. Very, very happy that you're here. Um, again, you know, you've written an incredible book. Um, there are so many hot topics in the book from divorce, sex outside of marriage, contraception, abortion, IVF, pornography, transgender identity, and homosexuality. I want to congratulate you. You know, I want to congratulate you um, for just having the courage uh, to take this on. You know, I'm just getting ready to, you know, purchase a case of these books because it's the book I always dreamed that I'd find. And, uh, you know, taking on all of those topics is a, a remarkable act of courage. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how the idea came to you to write the book and, um, you know, a little bit more about maybe Trent uh, Horn. How, like, how did this, how did this book come to be? Mm -hmm. So that's a great question. And it's kind of hits on what you said, which is there's nothing out there to help adults, mothers, you know, and fathers, grandparents talk to kids these days about these hot button moral issues that are so difficult and so entrenched and they're coming at us from every angle and there was really nothing out there that just in a simple way, in a way that everybody can understand and learn, uh, presented ways to talk to your kids about this, no matter their age. For example, um, well, we have 10 topics, 10 specific topics. So each section is dealing with a specific moral issue. And all of these just happen to touch on kind of what's exploding in the world right now, which is all these, the use and misuse of human sexuality and the way that we're made. So, for example, every section, let's say it's the section on um, transgenderism or something. The first chapter, again, very easy to read. My whole thing is I need things to be simple for me. So I assume other moms are harried and we're, we're tired and we need something to be very simple. So the first chapter in each of those topics would be what the church teaches. So that's just a way to get ourselves acclimated to, well, okay, this is what the church teaches on transgenderism or abortion or contraception or IVF or whatever. Then the next chapter is how to speak to little kids about this issue. So it gives you an idea of how do I approach in an age appropriate way? Cause the church is very specific that we do not expose little children to sexual issues right before they, before they are ready. Uh, that's called a latency period. And we don't want to mess with that. But how do we, now that the world has kind of exploded with all these sexual issues, how do we talk to little children prepubescent on that particular topic? Then the last chapter in each topic or section is how do we speak to postpubescent or teenagers about that particular topic as well? So it's very age appropriate. Uh, it's very cut and dry, easy to follow. There are some sample you know, uh, conversations in there as well. Um, and I've, I've raised most of my kids to adulthood so far. And I have, you know, the 13th grandchild is on the way. I still have three minors at home. My youngest is 12. So I started raising kids. My first daughter was born in 1991. She's 30. There was no 
you know, the kids shows didn't have LGBT themes in them. There wasn't any of this stuff out there yet. Gay marriage in America didn't even come until officially till 2015. So I've raised what I consider to be two shifts of children pre all this stuff where the culture was still pretty okay. And then now, so, so we really, yeah, so, so I think this is a, a, a really important um, sort of point that you're making. Like num- number one, I don't know if everybody heard, but Layla is a mother of eight children and how many grandchildren? Um, numbers 12 and 13 are on the way. So, so, so you have a yeah. tremendous amount of experience. And I think you and I know that there's sort of like no magical, mystical parenting, um, you know, <laughs> practices, but that there ought to be a difference between how we communicate with, um, you know, young toddlers to how we you know, communicate with teenagers. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more, uh, you know, like distinguish between the two periods there that you were just beginning to reference? Because I, I think that right now we, we live in this culture where we're wanting to expose our children to everything as soon as possible and to explain everything as soon as possible rather than to be guarding our children, right? Like I, I remember even when, you know, 9-11 was, uh, you know, all over television. Well, I wasn't putting my toddlers in front of the exploding buildings, whereas I saw a lot of moms were. So um, can you talk, talk a little bit about the, you know, need to protect and nurture versus the need to debate and discuss and reason and when those ages might be, you know, when, when are those ages and when do they start and finish and things like that? Yes, and I'm going to quote uh, St. John Paul II on this, um, who was very clear about the latency period. And the latency period is also what he called the age of innocence. And that is from the age of toddlerhood to about um, puberty. And those years, children should be able to be children. They should be, you know, physically and theoretically and, and figuratively unmolested. I mean, they should not be having to deal with any type of explicit or overt sexuality talk. Um, they shouldn't have, they shouldn't know the details of, of sex. Um, they shouldn't be exposed specifically. They, this is something unheard of prior to just the last few few years, but they should never be exposed to any discussion of homosexuality, for example. Now, I know everybody's probably going, well, how is that even possible? If you go to the document from the Pontifical Council for the Family called The Truth and Meaning of Human Sexuality, and I believe that came out in 1995, you can print it out. You can print it out on your, and I I recommend that you do, and get get a yellow highlighter and start reading it. It's several pages long, but it talks, it's guidance for parents about how to talk to children on human sexuality in the home. And one thing that it says in that document, and again, this was only in 1995, that discussion of things like homosexuality should not even be broached until they become, uh, until they hit puberty, unless it is unavoidable for some reason. Now, of course, we've reached a point in the culture where it's kind of unavoidable, but we're still supposed to protect our children from any sorts of devi- deviancy, deviation from God's plan 
for human sexuality. And that certainly would be a deviation. And what we used to call, um, again, forgive me, but we used to call it a perversion of sexuality. So we don't, we don't expose our children to that. That is immoral to actually openly expose your children to that. If there's a need to discuss it because of something that happened, maybe an uncle, you know, has a husband or maybe they saw something at, at school or on TV and, and, and it's unavoidable, you would then want to speak to them in the most guarded ways, uh, but not get explicit with anything also. So, again, this is church teaching and church understanding that we do not mess with the age of innocence of our children. And yes, it requires protection of the children. They will have enough time to be exposed to that later on when they're teens and adults, but we want to make sure that they're peaceful and um, secure and protected when they need to be, which is in their childhood. Yeah. And so one thing that, um, you know, my mom used to stress a lot, and and I don't know that it's getting stressed enough in our culture. And it's one of the reasons that our ministry exists is that really, you know, moms need to evaluate what their goals are as mothers, right? You know, so if my goal is to create a happy and a holy childhood for my children, rather than to expose them to as much as possible, as soon as possible, that's gonna that's gonna mean two different lives for, for me as a wife and mother. And that's one thing that we really, really, really wanna stress, and I don't know if I said really, but that our duty as a Catholic mother is to create a holy and innocent childhood where the intimacy exists within the family and the mom and the dad and the siblings and that you know that the the, the flower has room to bloom um anyway i'm going to just kind of like move a little bit forward because we've got a lot of questions here and a big shout out and thank you to tanya lee one of our mother's group leaders who helped in preparation for this interview um i know that in reading your book tanya had mentioned that you keep on kind of steering the reader back to moral law and that you talk about natural law moral law god's law could you can you tell us a little bit more about what moral law is and what moms or what parents can do to reinforce it? Yes, I get so excited about this. I want to hand all you moms your confidence. This is not brain surgery. This is why I keep coming back to this is simple. We just were never taught this. What is the moral law? It is not um, it is not it is not complicated. The natural law is, is, is a, a term we use for the universal moral law. Okay, so we, this whole book that Trent Horn and I, and he's from Catholic Answers, he's a very excellent apologist, and he's also a dad. The, the moral law, the natural law, is the way that God made things to run, okay, in his design, so we can see things have a design. Everything has a design. So even things that we create, let's let's start there. People create uh, hairbrushes. They create computers. They create chairs and tables and toasters and clocks. Everything has a purpose. Another word for that is a telos. Everything has a design. If we use a thing according to its design, things generally go well. Things Things can thrive that way. If we use a thing against its purpose or against its design or against its order, the ordered use of it, things tend to fall apart. Um, 
again, you, you all know that, that this is not brain surgery. This is why I want to say it's, it's quite easy to grasp this. And we've just never taught our children this. So let's say um, we, we use, you know, you, you could talk to a little kid and say, uh, you know, what would happen if daddy put molasses in the car instead of gasoline? And, and a child would understand instantly, oh, that's so silly. You know, that wouldn't work. We can't, it can't happen that way. It won't run. Exactly. So you teach your kids things like that. Just kind of get them acclimated to certain things are, are designed a certain way for a certain purpose. So natural law is what is this thing and what is it for? What is it made for? And so just as people design things, you could teach your children young. God also designed things. God made, God's the ultimate creator, right? I mean, we're just imitating him when we create things, but he created everything to begin with. He created us. He created the universe. He created the animals. But when he created us and the animals and the earth, he had a design in mind. And as long as we're using um, the, the things of the created world and our own bodies uh, in the way that God designed us, we will thrive. We will, we will tend to do well. And if we use our bodies or the things of the created world, if we use God's things the wrong way, things will tend to fall apart or things will go wrong. And so there's a morality that's in that when we use our own bodies that because we're rational, reasonable people, we can say, okay, we need to use our human sexuality in this way, because that's the design. That's the way that God made us. So these things are not, it's not brain surgery. We just have to look at how God designed us, look at how God designed the world and the moral world. And we all can come to these conclusions on our, on our, with use of human reason alone. And that's really important about natural law. And if you don't mind, I, I just want to differentiate. People think of natural law and they think the laws of nature. Well, no, we're not talking about science and like how gravity works. That's all very important. But we're, we want to talk about the moral law and how we act. How are human beings supposed to act? And how are we supposed to know what to do and what not to do? So we're not talking when we say natural law, we're not talking about laws of nature. We're not talking about what comes naturally to me. Like I may want to grab a whole bunch of cookies when I see them on a plate and that might come naturally to me, but that's not when we talk about the moral law. That's not what we're talking about either. And we're also not talking about what comes naturally to animals, you know, because people like to say, well, animals in nature, they have homosexual acts and things like that. It's like, well, that's not what natural law is either. We're talking about what is the moral law? What is it that every human being on the planet, whether they're an atheist, whether they're a Buddhist, whether they're a Christian, whether they're, you know, a Catholic Christian, doesn't matter. What do we all know? What, do, what can we all understand with just our minds? And again, what can we all know? We know that stealing is wrong. Every culture knows that. Everyone, an atheist, can reason to that pr proposition, right? Everyone knows that murdering innocent people is wrong. You don't have to be a Catholic to know that. You can come to that from the light of human reason. And St. Paul even says that in, in his uh, epistles where he says, you know, we can look at creation and we can know what the moral law is. It's written in our hearts. So the whole book is based on, this is not rocket science. We can figure this out. And your kids were literally made to figure this out. They, truth is something that they were made to understand. And as long as we're teaching them simple truths about how things were made and how to, how to, how to act as, as moral agents, as people, as human beings between each other and among each other, they're going to be more peaceful, more ordered, and they're going to have a happier life. And most importantly, they're going to end up in heaven. So 
that's a basis for each of these things that we go through, each of these um, uh, tough moral issues is just how God made us. We've deviated from this idea of natural law recently, but it's actually even the basis of um, the Nuremberg trials and how people were um, convicted when they were Nazis. It goes to the founding of America. It's based in natural law and, and laws of God. So we've got to get back to that. And the church traditionally has used natural law as the way that we teach the faith. So yeah. we need to get back to it. And that's what we're doing in this book. Yeah. And, and a shout out to all moms, you know, as moms, we need to reclaim our confidence in speaking about some of these things. Cause I think, you know, like one of the moms in my mom's group once said that if a mother at her own kitchen table is afraid to declare the truth. And if a mother at her own kitchen table is afraid to, you know, call a sin a sin and to teach the Catholic faith, our culture is in serious, serious trouble. You know, it, it, it used to be, quote unquote, the mom that would say to the, her husband, OK, well, maybe you're drinking too much. You need to get you know, back on track or, you know, we need to get to mass like the, the, the mom used to be the moral compass in the old days. And and so we're shouting out to moms. We, we need you to build that confidence. Now, Layla, one of the things that you mentioned in your book made this way is that the biggest trap that Catholics fall into is talking about, you know, when it comes to, you know, same-sex marriages, you know, why we're against it, why do we don't believe in it. And you stress that the dialogue should, in fact, be, what is marriage? Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about, well, maybe some of us here are in the dark about what, you know, what is marriage and how can we get the conversation back on track? Right. And it's very hard when we're living in a certain era and all we know is what's swirling around us. It's hard to take ourselves out of that era and realize this is a point in time. But for all of history prior to five seconds ago, historically speaking, marriage isn't wasn't seen as it is now in our culture. There was the shift. There was a shift in right around the time of the sexual revolution where Previously, again, natural law would tell us what is marriage. Okay, marriage is um, a bride and a bridegroom. Um, it's always been that way. Again, whether it was religious cultures, atheistic cultures, you always had a, a bride presupposes a bridegroom. And they would be brought together in a lifelong permanent union that would be consummated. Okay, you'd have to have a consummation because even in the any secular, you could still get a, a secular civil annulment if, if the marriage was never consummated, if the two people never had sexual relations, it wasn't even considered, um, you know, it, you could get out of it as being a non-marriage because it hadn't happened. Um, consummation had to happen and children were the result of this union. And the reason marriage existed was so that society could raise up children with a mother and a father to have a stable and healthy thriving society with citizens that were healthy and thriving. And so there was this, um, and that's always been the teaching of the church as well. You know, you, you get married in order to procreate and, and educate your children. You love each other, of course, but the procreation and education of children were always very much, you know, the primary ends of marriage. 
And then there was this shift in the culture with the sexual revolution, which started to make, instead of an objective reason for what God created in the garden, because he created marriage as the very first human relational thing he ever created, male and female, and be fruitful and multiply, there was this shift in the 1960s to change it from objective reality to feelings and desires. And again, you can see kind of where Satan can get in, because as soon as you get into feelings and desires rather than objective reality and truth, you go wonky. So you've got this idea now that marriage is about a romantic feeling. And it's not really about children. I mean, children, well, you know, you can have children if you want, but it's about the two people having this romance, this feeling of love, and it's an emotion, and it makes you feel good. And, and this person is supposed to fulfill your emotional needs forever, uh, you know, until death or until you divorce, if they stop fulfilling your needs. Um, that shift is huge. So it takes it from the societal and, and child rearing um, union of marriage to the romance version of marriage, completely different things. So if you ask someone, what is marriage? And I've done this many, many times over the years. Um, and if they're pro, let's say pro gay marriage, they can't give you a definition of something that couldn't also be used for, let's say, um, a little league team or uh, two sisters deciding to retire and live together in an apartment or, um, I mean, everything they say, it, it's not about the conjugal union that can only be had between a man and a woman who can, who can produce children, even if they can't produce children, even if they're infertile, it's ordered toward the production of children. Um, which only God, you know, God's in charge of conception. So that part isn't ours to, to deal with. He, he opens and closes the womb. But you have to have a consummation. You have to have an ability to come together in this union that is unique among all other types of relationships. You can't have that with two men. You can't have that with two women. You can't, ha you simply can't. And uh, one way that even I can, I can prove to you that even the secular world knows that it, it's not the same thing is that in the UK, if you go on their website to how to annul a marriage, again, this is civil, civil, we're not talking about religious annulments, how to annul a marriage, it will say what it always has, which is non-consummation, if, if you can't have sex, if it's not possible, or if you haven't done it, that can be a nullity. And then they have a little asterisk and a little parentheses that says, does not apply to same-sex couples. Oh, okay, wow, they're admitting this is not the same. These two <laughs> things are not the same. We have different rules for marriage for husbands and wives than we do for gay couples. Why? Because they can't achieve what a marriage is. So we've had to almost carve out this exception because it's a totally different, it's a different animal. So anyway. Oh, well, um, I can probably um, speak no, I can, forever on it. And I'm, I'm, hoping, I'm, I'm hoping that we can um, at one point have you fly down to Canada for a full day, <laughs> never mind this one hour on Zoom um, yes. and maybe a couple of different cities, who knows. Um, so let's just pretend I'm, I'm you know, playing a little bit of devil's advocate here. Um, let's pretend that your child who's in kindergarten comes to you and says, you know, why can't girls marry girls? Like, what would you say? Strangely enough, that actually happened to me. My youngest child was five and he came to me. We, he, at the time he was in a, um, a, a public charter school. So it was not a Catholic school, but he, it could happen in a Catholic school though now, couldn't it? But he came to me, we, I was ladling him up some soup and I have this story in the book. Um, he was five in kindergarten and he happened to have, there was a, a, a 
couple of girls there who had lesbian parents. And again, I, I eventually, I, the next year I had to move him out of the school completely because I didn't want to have to deal with, you know, discussing these things. But he said to me one day, you know, mom, um, girls can marry girls. And he said it kind of matter of factly. And I was like, oh, so one thing you have to do as parents is you do not react. You have to be great actors and actresses and you just have to be very calm. So I just kept fixing the soup and ladling the soup. And I was like, oh, okay. well, where did you hear that? You ask a question, give yourself some time to, you may be freaking out inside, but do not react. Um, Cause then they'll never approach you again, right? Your kids will never approach you if they think that you're gonna freak out if they, if they talk or ask you questions. So uh, he said, well, Katie told me, and it happened to be not the child of the lesbians, but just another child. Well, Katie told me. And I said, oh, okay, well, you know, Katie is such a sweet little girl, but Katie is wrong. Um, girls can't marry girls. Girls can't marry girls. Um, God has designed it so that only boys can marry girls and that there can be mommies and daddies for the babies. And isn't it sad? Wouldn't it be just so terribly sad to, for a, a child not to have a mommy or for a child not to have a daddy? Because that's not the way God wants it. He wants you to have a mommy and a daddy. And he thought about it and he's like, yeah. <laughs> and it was just that simple. I mean, I, I, he's 12 now. We never had another problem with it since. The, the, the fear is that people want to describe things and get into it. You don't have to. Again, remember, we're keeping them innocent at this age. We don't need to discuss sex. Doesn't need to be brought up. We just know that God designed that children should have a mommy and a daddy. And in fact, all children do have a mommy and a daddy. And if it, if it, if it doesn't work out that way, it's usually because someone has gone off doing their own thing and not what God wanted them to do. Um, yeah, so I, I got just a quick little comment here. Um, I know that at one of my mother's group meetups, one mom said something that, you know, these mother's group meetups, sometimes a mom says something and it's like, boom, it hits me. And one mom said that one of the biggest mistakes that mothers make when they're mothering is to overreact in the moment. Right. And, and I yeah. was definitely one of those mothers right and um and and i, I want to use this as a teaching moment to all of you is that when you feel your kind of energy and emotions and passions rising is in that moment to pray to the holy spirit because if you know that overreacting is going to cause damage that might be motivation enough for you not to overreact, right? So um, that, that's a fruit of, you know, hanging out with moms wiser. Uh, uh, just a very quick story. I used to host not only moms group, but I also hosted uh, many girls clubs. And one, mom, one girl called me, I don't know, I think she was 12 years old or something. She had been attending my, um, my girls club. And she says, you know, you know, Mrs. Mrs. McElroy, I want to talk to you. I said, okay, yeah, let's talk. I'm here. Let's talk. What's the She goes, you know, I, I think I, 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 I think I might be gay. And uh, I said, you're not. I said, you're wrong. And she was like, I said, you know, and I'm going to use a fake name here. I said, you know, Maria, you know what? 
There is no such thing as a gay gene. So you don't have to worry that you have a gay gene in your body because there is no gay gene. Sometimes when you're in puberty, you get confused and you get lots of emotions and you get really excited when you meet a new girlfriend because you have a lot in common. That doesn't mean you're gay. There's no such thing as a gay gene. <laughs> and uh, trust me, I know the girl right now <laughs> and she's well on her way to being married. She never, but she didn't, she just needed someone to speak that truth, right? And I, I do want to encourage each and every one of you to get um, Layla's book and to read it and, and maybe memorize one-liners. Now, I'm going to move forward um, just a little bit because I got lots of other questions here. How about this? Again, a, a teenager might use the argument with you that you can't force your Catholic views on others or you can't force the law, or that people love each other and should be able to get married, even if you know they are the same sex. Uh, how would you use reason to answer that question? So there's a lot of different parts to that question. So let's start with the, let's start with the love part. So we could say, you know, up until again five minutes ago, historically, love a feeling of love was never a prerequisite for valid marriage. You never, when you go to get a marriage license and to this day, you do not have to prove that you are in love. You do not have to sign a, you know, a, a, anything on that, that marriage license that says we have romantic feelings for each other and we're feeling really, no, they just want to know if you're free to marry, you know, if you have no other spouse and if you're of a certain age and, you know, meet those requirements. Um, the uh, the idea that we marry whom we you know whoever we love is also doesn't make any sense because we love lots of people. I mean, I love my mom, I love my friend, I love my neighbors. I I've loved a few boyfriends in my day. I didn't marry each one of them. You don't marry someone simply because I feel love. That means I have a right or I should marry that person. That's not again. That's never been what marriage was. Four, never been the definition or an, an essential of marriage. Don't get me wrong. We want you to be in love when you're married. We want you to feel, ideally, you would have these wonderful feelings, um, which by the way, come and go. We need to teach our kids that too. It's like, just because your feelings go away for a while, if you're married, doesn't mean you're not married. There's another thing, right? When love goes away, does that mean we're suddenly unmarried? Of course not. So love as an essential, as an essential to what is marriage in its essence that that feeling of love was never part of that. I, I, I tell the story of my grandparents who are from the old country. You know, I'm half Arab. And uh, they got married with the bishop because there's a lot of Christian Arabs, as we know. Um, the bishop, and, the, and then they end, went on and had five kids and 14 grandkids. And those are my grandparents. They barely knew each other when they got married. They were married. I remember celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. So the idea that like, oh, well, you know, love, love is the essence of all marriage. No, no, no. Love is the essence of all relationships. Sure. And between God and us, but it's not the essence of what makes a marriage a marriage. So, so we have to really back up and talk to our teenagers and really just say, let's just look at it. Um, the, uh, you said something, what was the first part of what you said? Now I need to back up and. Um, well, you can't force Catholic views on people. Oh, thank you. So you can't force Catholic views. In matters of the creed, in matters of divine revelation, things like the sacraments or the Marian uh, doctrines or the different things, right, you cannot legislate or force someone to uh, go to mass, right? That, that's called 
that, that's off limits. That That is a, a Catholics are required to go to mass on Sundays. Non-Catholics are not required by the moral law to go to mass on Sundays. Um, what are all people required to do? To follow the natural law. What is the natural law? That's the thing that is, again, the universal moral law that applies to all human beings, whether they're atheists or the, the highest saint. And that is you can't kill people. Okay. That is that marriage is what it is because it's, it's in nature. It's in nature that a man and a woman are like a lock and a key. They fit together. The two parts of the reproductive system aren't even complete without each other. It's the only system in the body that has another half. Okay. This is all based in even science. It's based in creation. So marriage is something that is universal. That's why you have it in China where they hate religion. You know, they don't have mass in China. That's known as good and wonderful. And that's what we do. They'd like to outlaw that. And they have, because that's a religious Catholic thing, but they do have natural marriage. Why? Because even atheists see that natural marriage has always been a universal thing that builds a society. So again, we're not imposing natural law. You can't impose natural moral law on people because everyone's required and sees it and has it in their heart anyway. You can't steal, you can't lie, you can't cheat, you can't beat people up, you can't rape people, and marriage is a thing, and life is, is inviolable. I mean, all these things are written on the hearts of every human being, and they can all get to it through the light of human reason. That's not imposing the Catholic faith. That's saying this is how nature is. This is how we were made, and this is how human beings have always acted and always understood things until, again, five seconds ago, historically, when... Yeah subjective things came in to supplant the truth. And so I have a, I've got a lot more questions here, so I'm going to keep on moving forward. But do you have any advice, let's say, for moms who have all of the truth within their hearts and their souls, and they're convicted along all of these lines, but they don't have the gift of speaking about it the way perhaps that you do. And, and so there's this chasm between themselves and their, their, their youth. So if someone doesn't have the verbal skills, maybe to take their teenager on, or like, do you have any suggestions for moms maybe that aren't as confident verbally as maybe you are? Well, I would first say that confidence is a muscle that we have to we have to practice because if we can't be confident or at least pre fake it, I, I'm, all, I'm big on faking it, fake it, and then have a breakdown later, go to your room and cry and, you know, fall apart. But when you're with other people, whether it's your neighbor, your child, your husband, whoever, who is a, of a different mind, you have to be able to at least speak the basic truth. It doesn't have to be, um, you know, a big treatise on anything. You don't yes, have to be a theologian. I guess that's where your book would come in really handy, yeah, right? Because that's why we wrote it. We wrote it because we're like, look, this is just, this is so simple when it comes down to its essence. But the big ingredient that's missing usually is confidence and courage. And if you don't have that confidence and courage yourself, you will never expect a teenager to stand up to his classmates or social, you know, shaming. How can they do it if the adults can't do it? So we have to get back to understanding, and this is through prayer, obviously, you must pray for confidence because, you know, if, if we're asked to be even martyrs at some point, surely we should be able to stand a little social shame if someone mocks us. Let's say we say, we don't, you know, this is not how God made people, or this is not even how nature made people to do this or that. If we can't stand a little pushback, how are we going to be 
martyred one day if, if called to, right? So we, we've got to do it. If you have younger children, start by letting them read The Emperor's New Clothes. That, that, that book right there will show that even though everyone else denies the obvious, a little child can still see it and go, well, I, that looks like he doesn't have any clothes on. You know, you want them, you go back to the fables with the little kids and let them, let them understand the foundation of things to begin with. And it'll be easier for them to say, this doesn't make sense. Everybody's saying that a man can be a woman, but I know that that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense in, in science and in, in philosophy and reality. Um, so start them with these, you know, especially the emperor's new clothes, start them to understand that truth matters, truth and what we know through our senses is real. Um, feelings, you shouldn't really rely on feelings for everything because feelings change every day and you can be manipulated quite easily with feelings and emotions. And that's where the devil is going to get us in our emotions. Start with truth, start with reality, and then let your emotions kind of be subordinate. And the church teaches this and we, we don't teach this to our kids anymore. That our emotions must be subordinate to our intellect and our will. So we have to know what we know. We have to know the truth, reality, you know, this is the desk, you know, I'm a girl, you know, uh, <laughs> and then um, we, we apply our will, you know, maybe, maybe I don't want to believe that. Maybe I'm feeling, nope. You want to go with God's will, how he created things. You apply the will. The emotions are subordinate to all that. Unfortunately, what we have is that, and especially our teenagers and, and any younger generation, they literally have been taught that if you feel something, that is truth. Yeah. That is literally yeah. what society teaches them. So we're fighting this battle of madness. They've been taught madness. And <laughs> we've got to get back to what is true, what is concrete, what is real. Yeah. Um, and, 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 so that's why I start young when they're little. But if, if you have teens, we've got to start pulling them back and and start saying, look, let's let's just evaluate, you know, should we let our feelings rule everything and lead us to truth? And what happens when our feelings change? Yeah. And, and where does that leave us? Yeah. Now, a little trick that I don't know if it'll be useful to, or handy to any of the moms here. But, um, you know, sometimes, you know, I used to say to my kids, well, look, I don't really feel like cooking. I don't ever feel like cooking. So I guess we'll just never have supper again because I don't really feel like going grocery shopping either. And really, you know what? I feel like just selling this house and taking all the money and going to Hawaii. <laughs> and their little faces were just like, we can't rely strictly on our feelings. We've got to do with what, you know, what is right. And, uh, and so sometimes having those conversations in a very simple way, or, you know, sometimes my kids would say to me, but everybody else is going to that party or everybody else is watching that movie. Why can't I? I sometimes would say, well, like a lot of moms I know are getting divorced. So maybe maybe I should get divorced since everyone else is doing it. And then you could go, you know, and they would like, you know, and, and so sometimes just having, um, you know, not abusive confrontational conversation, but like making them a little bit fun loving using reason to help you know, kids see that maybe some of the things they're saying are being a little bit ridiculous. Now, I want to move on to transgender identity. Um, but before talking about transgender identity, I wanted, uh, you know, Tanya, who's helped prepare for this, it was suggesting that we take a look and differentiate between the sex of a person and the gender of a person. And like some people don't even know that there's a difference between the sex and the gender and what is the gender. And we've almost come to, you know, 
put gender as almost like a false god. Can you can you talk briefly outline the difference between those yeah, two? Yeah, people get people get very confused. And I'm gonna uh, okay. Sex is the biological sex of the person. So male, female. There are a few people in the world who are intersex, which has a little bit of you know a congenital issue. But again, it's based in science in the flesh in the chromosomes. But either way, even then, science can get to the fact and say, well, this person, even though they have maybe different uh, two sex characteristics, we know this is actually a female. So there's two sexes. It's how God created it, male and female. Gender is a construct. Gender is something that does not actually apply to humans. It never has. It's applied to language, like gendered language, like the French language, um, the the first time it was applied to humans was by Dr. John Money, and he was a sexologist, actually a horrible man, who you can look him up, look him up on Wikipedia, I don't care where, there are uh, videos about what he did to children, very horrible man. He was the first to say that there are gender um, roles and gender things about people that are more societally based, and again, more what's, his name? what's his name again? Dr. Dr. John Money, M-O-N-E-Y. Okay. There are documentaries. It is scary. It is frightening what he did to a set of twin boys, one of whom had a, a botched uh, circumcision. He said, now we're going to, we have got, got a subject. We can raise this little boy as a girl. Well, that little boy ended up growing up and he ended up committing suicide and his brother ended up dying of a drug overdose. He was a pervert, actually, and he made them do sexual things. This, this is the guy that came up with gender, which actually has no basis in science or in um, reality. Gender is a construct that they use to say, well, that's how we feel about ourselves. That's our identity. That's how we have you know, our thoughts about, about our, our sex or our sexuality. We may be biologically one way, but we, we feel and we know that we're really something else in our identity. Now, I have asked this question of so many people. Show me where gender exists outside of the imagination. Nobody can answer that. It is an imaginary thing. And they will admit that, that it's a construct. So, but we have based everything now based on gender identity, meaning we based everything on what's in a kid's or a person's imagination. And we make laws about it now and we silence people because they say, what, what do you, I, I, I have to now, call you a pronoun that's not true. And that makes me a liar if I say that you're a he when you're really a she. And um, and I can't lie because that's my faith, right? I'm not allowed to lie. We need to tell our children, you go back to first, first principles, you can't lie. You can be kind and gentle and, and good to people, but they can't make you lie because that makes you sin. You're then a sinner, right? They, they can sin if they want, but it's it's now imposing on the Catholic or the Christian or just the reasonable thinker saying you have to do what we say, you have to say what we want you to say, even if it's a lie. Well, again, you can, you can almost sense Satan in this, you know, the father of lies. You've got to say what I say is true, even though you know it's not true. That's not what Catholics do, right? So, um, so we're, we're in rocky ground here. It's very tricky, but there is only biological sex that is something that is real, that is concrete, and gender is a construct, and even gender identity ide ideologues will admit it is a social construct, but they want everything to be based on that. Well, so. and it, it really is diabolical, and what really scares me more than anything, and um, I know that um, 
you know, we've got it here listed in the in the questions or the comments that if we sort of as Catholics sit back and let this transgender ideology take further root and we don't, um, you know, stand up and fight the good fight and teach the truth in our homes, you know, is there a possibility in your mind if we just like sort of sit and watch it and allow it that we we could lose you know what it means to be a father we could lose what it means to be a mother and it it, it it's just like I, I went to a hospital once and it asked you know what gender I was and it was a catholic hospital and there were you know, I don't know, 20 different options. And like, so I'm like, so does, does that mean now I am no longer like the mother of my child because of all, like, do you have any thoughts on that? Like if we just allow this to, it's like we're brokering children and that children have become commodities that anyone can take care of and that the true mother and the true father are just kind of, like it just, it, it, it scares the living daylights out of me. It's, it's not just a consequence of it. It is actually the goal of it is to get rid of motherhood and fatherhood. It, it actually is. And even JP2 said the, the whole goal of Satan in original sin was to get rid of the fatherhood of God. Because if you get rid of um, the fatherhood of God, then you, you separate humanity from God and then we, we go to hell. So uh, when JP2 said that, you got to remember in the garden, if, if, if God created male and female, that means he also created mothers and fathers. If we're genderless, if we're fluid, if none of that matters anymore, there is no God, there's no relationship, there's no fatherhood. You can get rid of fatherhood on the earth, that's gonna translate to getting rid of fatherhood of God. So this is actually the goal of Satan is to get rid of uh, you know, the sexes, to get rid of it, to blur it, and to make it all one big amalgamous thing. If you look at even the, um, now they're not saying mothers anymore, even in America, you know, the, some of the senators or whatever, they're saying uh, birthing people. So notice how utilitarian that is. It's like it's a person or a body that's giving birth. It's not a mother anymore. Mother is like the blessed mother. That's that's a relationship we have. That's a specific gift, you know, of motherhood. It, it means something to a child. And then if you just say birthing person, how is that different than like, um, you know, a, a combine, an engine? You know, I mean, it's just something that is a thing that does a thing. <sighs> you take away... And that's what they want, right? It's it's on it's on birth certificates now in certain states or different places where it's like you know parent one, parent two. If you are genderless, I, I always go back to this. You know, they want to create a genderless society, and I don't like that word because again, genderless, a sexless society is really what it should be. But if there's androgyny, which is the goal, the goal is just everybody is androgynous. There's a reason. I always come back to if any of you have seen the Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, the Satan figure is androgynous. Why does he make the Satan figure androgynous? Because it unsettles us as human beings. We are unsettled when we do not know whether that person is a male or a female. We are, the, male and female is the first thing we notice about a person and the last thing we forget. If we are in a store and we talk to a clerk, we may not remember the name, what they're wearing, their hair color, their height. We will remember whether we talk to a man or a woman. That is so innate in us as humans, and they want to eradicate that altogether. And it is satanic, and it is about getting rid of, of mothers and fathers. It's about getting rid of daughters and sons 
and aunts and uncles. It's about getting rid of human relationships as God created them in a family. So you're not wrong. <sighs> no. And again, this is, I have to be careful because I can go on very passionate tangents and I just have a few minutes left with you. Um, so a mom asked, what should she do when her seven-year-old says he wants to dress up as a girl? What should parents do in this situation? Mm -hmm. So, and that comes back to the irony of that the same people who want to get rid of the sexes will say, well, if you're son wants to wear pink and wear a dress and have long hair that must mean you may want to explore that he is really a girl well it's like I thought that I was all just we don't do gender roles you know we don't do that like you know a boy can play with dolls and a girl can play with trucks I thought we didn't do that but all of a sudden it's the most important thing well he's wearing pink and he wants to wear nail polish and oh I bet he's a girl it's like well which is it pick one it either is important or it's not so I would just say this, you see what I mean? It's always, but that's Satan again, the confusion and the chaos. It doesn't ever make sense. If a boy is overly effeminate or feminine, I would say, because effeminate has a whole other, St. Thomas Aquinas has a whole other meaning for effeminacy. If, if, if a boy wants to be more feminine, you know, to a certain extent, big deal. It doesn't make him not a boy. We've never said before that just because a, a, a guy likes to dance or something, you know, as a kid or twirl or whatever. We've never said, well, that's not a boy. That's not a boy. Okay, he likes to dance, he likes to twirl. If the, it goes to a point where it seems very feminine, like that, okay, people are going to go, that's not boy-like at all. Like, And I've, I have one or two boys of my own. I have six boys and two girls. One, you know, who, a couple of them, I'm like, wait, that's weird. They're kind of acting very feminine. You just redirect the kid. You want the kid to be well-adjusted. If a kid is a, is a male, you want the child to be masculine in the end because masculinity is a perfection and femininity is a perfection. It's what God wants. It can be seen in many different ways, but we still want to, a men to be masculine and women to be feminine. So you would say, and there's nothing wrong with this. They'll tell you there's something wrong with this. I would tell my son, okay, honey, you know what? You're talking, ah, you're doing this kind of high pitch, whatever. I said, bring the bring your voice down. You know, boys don't need to to squeal like a girl or whatever. I just say that. I don't care. I don't care what my child is gonna. Guess what? He's 12 now, or you know, he's one of them is actually even an adult with a wife. Uh, but uh, totally all male now. Never had a problem. Oh, okay. Just kind of redirect. So if your son wants to wear a dress, personally in this culture, it's never been that girl that boys wear dresses. That might be in Scotland that they wear a kilt. That's that's their regional thing. Here it's associated with being a girl, right? Femininity. So you know what? Boys don't wear dresses. We don't wear dresses. Okay, you know, then they wear something else. Unless you're pushing them towards it. And a lot of times it's the mom who is encouraging this because they are very, we're more emotional. We feel more. We don't want our children to be hurt. We don't want our children to feel bad. So we go along with what they want. No, just say, you know what? In the same way we can say to our daughters, you know, it's okay to sit like a lady, you know, sit like a lady. We could say to our boys, you know what? Don't don't move your hands like this all the time, you know, kind of keep your hands in your control because you're a guy. It's totally fine to do that. And guess what? It actually works. It actually works. And you don't have to transition them and then, you know, later mutilate their genitals in order yeah, to. You know. Know. Uh, just a quick little story. Again, I was born in Poland, raised by two Polish parents. And I, we traveled. We went to Poland on a number of occasions. And I did notice in Poland that the Polish male 
um, was different than the North American male, right? The North American male, you know, is very, very much, you know, driven towards football, towards hockey, towards very aggressive sports. And in Poland, you know, a lot of, you know, the, the, the sports are more like tennis and maybe soccer. And so in Poland, it wouldn't be unusual for a male while we're on a hike to come up to me and stroke my head and say, hey, look, it looks like you're hurting. It looks like you're, you know, this is too difficult. And I remember the first couple of times I traveled to Poland and I had these extremely empathetic, caring males. I was kind of a little bit, you know, and, and so I was, a, I was a little bit startled. And then you've got that sort of North American male. And I know that there was a, a doctor, um, I think his name was Fitzgibbons for a while. He was doing some work with um, males that weren't the football players, that weren't the hockey players, um, but that they were the chefs and they were the musicians and they were they they were a more effeminate version of a male but they weren't considered that they weren't men you know right. um and so i also like moms to like i know that when i married the husband that i have who is a canadian who drove you know our our son and daughter into hockey ringette into and and i had a like a natural aversion to it because my my dad was a church organist you know my dad played the balalaika my dad was the gentlest soul in the family so to distinguish between um, the men of the finer arts versus someone that's gay. And I think that sometimes yes. men think that just because they're painters or chefs or guitarists, right. that they're gay. And, right. and so that to me is a, you know, another thing that's very important, I think, for moms to distinguish and not maybe to condemn yes. um, the, the son that likes to cook. <laughs> you know? Exactly. And, and I need to make that distinction. There are more sensitive boys and there are um, more rough boys. And that's fine. That's just a variation of what boys are. It doesn't matter. What, what I'm talking about more is that if a boy takes on the affect of a female, like yes. an affect, like I'm going to paint my nails and I'm going to, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. and I'm going to speak a certain way. And I mean, you can redirect those more feminine traits and they can still be a musician and a very, we want our boys to be virtuous, which means compassionate and kind. And they're never going to be women in their intuitiveness and all that men, no matter what their temperament and no matter what their uh, disposition and personality, whether they're more gentle and sensitive, they're still hardwired to be the protectors and the providers. That's the difference. Yes. Women are the nurturers. We, we're the life bearers. We're the more intuitive ones. We're the more relational ones. You know, when Adam and Eve were created, I love this. You know, Adam, the first thing he saw were the goods of the earth. Men are builders. They build, whether it's a symphony or a building or the roads, who's still building the roads? It's still the guys, right? There's no girl, girls aren't out there building roads and, and, and skyscrapers. Very rarely do you find that in a, a construction crew, right? It's usually there, you know, the, and the deadly jobs are still the men. They protect and provide. What did Eve see when she first had her view of, of, of creation? When she was created, 
She saw all the goods of the earth too, but she also saw a person. She saw Adam. We are relational. We're the ones who, who you know, we relate to, to the other human beings around us where the men are doing more of the goods of the earth. They're, they're building cities. They're, they're trying to stay on task and, and protect their families. So we are different even when our temperaments are, um, you know, we want nurturing men, but we just, it's in a different way, <laughs> you know, and their, their constitutions are different. Men and women are different by design and it's okay to say that. Yeah, um, I don't know if you saw the movie, and um, and I guess just a shout out to all moms. And it, it it just the movie made me so angry. Um, The movie Palmer, and it's a story about a convict who befriends a young boy who is being raised by a drug addict, alcoholic mother. And that young boy uh, starts to, you know, dress up as a girl and, you know, so on and so forth, because the alcoholic and drug addicted mother um, starts buying this boy princess items and so on and so forth. And so when this convict becomes friends with this young boy, one kind of thinks that maybe, um, you know, maybe the the ex-convict is going to somehow help the the young boy discover his his um, masculinity. But instead, it's a godless movie. And so then the ex-convict reinforces all of the constructs built in the mind of the young boy. And the, the fact that he was risen by, you know, uh, being risen by this drug-infested, alcoholic, drug-addicted mother that's being beaten in a trailer, um, the young boy is affirmed, you know. And and it's so tragic because the, the movie is, it's a brilliant movie, but it's a godless movie. And because it's a godless movie, there's no hope for the child. Right. There's no, and, you know, it's on Netflix and it just, ah, oh, it infuriates me that God isn't introduced as a part of the movie. Um, and, and again, one of my famous tangents. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I promised. Well, it, it's a missed opportunity, right? Every yeah, time it's a missed opportunity. We're missing the point. We're kind of off the reservation here going off in, yes. in, in directions that the movie could take it to a redemption. But instead, it just reaffirms disorder. And I love I love. You guys, if there's a way that you can raise your children, right and wrong is a very good way to raise, you know, to use terms right and wrong because we need basic things. But order and disorder seems to really resonate too. Like if things are orderly, if we if we follow a certain order that God has placed in, in the world, um, we have peace. Like everybody just wants peace, right? And, and peace comes from the tranquility of order. Um, and that, uh, gosh, I can't remember which saint said that, but that's not me. Peace comes from the tranquility of order. And we have to have order in our souls just as God ordered the world. And so if we can start to say to our kids, you know, well, this, you know, you don't want to do this because that would be, um, that's, that's disordered. And if something is disordered, it's going to give you chaos. It's going to make you feel bad. Even if at first it makes you feel good because there's maybe a feeling attached to it. It's, if things are disordered, it's chaotic. And, you know, that's why we see, I mean, again, the disorder, your teens can look around and see their peers and they'll say, 
these aren't happy people. I mean, they're committing suicide at an all-time high. They're anxious. They're depressed. They're broken in so many different ways. They don't even know if they're a boy or girl. They're, this is not peaceful. Yeah. And by continuing down a path of disorder, it's not going to make them peaceful. It's actually going to make things worse. So, you know, make the te you know, teenagers can kind of see that intuitively. Um, so we have to, I, I, again, I'm kind of being on a tangent here, but I'm just saying, let's use, let's think in terms of order and disorder, and then we can understand where peace could come. Okay. Now, how all of our, a lot of our kids, um, and I know that you know, I've got two adult children, 25 and 27, and and just through the word, you know, they're observing, um, they're they're observing people transitioning, right? What do we say? What do we, like? Sometimes parents don't say anything because they don't know what to say, but our children are seeing it, and if nothing is being said, that's a problem as well. So. Yeah. How would yeah. you handle those situations where we're observing people who are transitioning? Yeah, it's, um, and that's happening everywhere and, they, and they're seeing their friends. I mean, they're seeing people, if they're confused about it, one thing I, I would say is you always have to present, first of all, compassion. We, we wanna be compassionate with everybody. Nobody is saying that uh, we hate these people. These are terrible people. We don't know what kind of horror, you know, goes on and, and lives inside them. And they are very confused. And there is um, maybe brokenness in their lives. And, and or maybe it's just a social contagion. Uh, so we, we don't judge their hearts and souls. We, we, again, we pull back and we say, what is true? What is real? And um, we, we do go back to science. We do go back to, um, uh, you know, reality. If we don't start with reality, we end up again in chaos. So one thing that I think would resonate with teenagers now, and I just, it's not even in the book because I just saw this the other day, the, what kids do see is that acceptance is everything. People are so unmoored from anything. There's no, there's no firm foundations anymore. There's no truth anymore. So they're very confused to begin with. And then they want to belong because that's natural. So they, they, find these communities, especially online, which are telling them they can belong, you know, they can be accepted. And, and really they aren't being accepted as who they are, but if they do the right things and say the right things and uh, play the right card, like I'm a victim here, but I'm not, if I'm this, so I have to become a victim so that I can be accepted. Otherwise I'm gonna be, I'm an oppressor. You know, they will, kids will kind of glom on to whatever their peers are saying they need. There's a woman, I want everybody, if possible, please, this is so important. I couldn't believe what I was learning. Uh, her name is uh, Helena, Helena Kirshner, and it's K-E-R-S-C-H-N-E-R, -E Helena Kirshner. She shared her story of transitioning to being a boy and then coming back, and now she's back to being a woman. She's 24 now, I think. She explains what happened. A lot of it happens on social media. The, the way that the mind can be brought into this non-reality is so frightening, but every parent needs to understand how this happens because it is about taking them away from the reality of like actual firm, you know, trees and, and ground and dirt and air and tables and chairs and, and brings them into this virtual world where everything is in the imagination. And that 
then plays on them. It's very, again, it's very, it's very diabolical in one sense. Michael Knowles, um, he's with Daily Daily Wire, but Michael Knowles, he's a Catholic. The Michael Knowles show interviewed her, and this is maybe a month ago. Go on YouTube and find Helena's detransitioning story on Michael Knowles. You will be, she's so intelligent. She tells it like it happened to her. Planned Parenthood is now in the business of giving injections, testosterone injections to young women who want them. That's their new moneymaker, right? They are always on, you know, whatever is going to make money and, and ruin people and ruin lives. She tells her story and how it happened. And even her parents were against it. Didn't matter. You have to know why this happens. It's, it's, and it would be something to watch with your teenagers and say, does this happen? Like, do you, does this seem familiar to you? If you're online a lot, you could ask your teenagers that. So there's all sorts of things we can do, but we have to educate ourselves as to why is this happening in the first place? Um, And it is actually something most parents aren't watching. They're not seeing what's happening when their kids are online and this social transitioning is happening. And so again, ground them in reality. If they're teens already, it's going to be, it might be rough to pull them back, but you cannot go along with it. You cannot just say, um, okay, well, I love you and I don't want to lose you. You have to be like the prodigal father kind of, or the prodigal mother who's like, I love you. I will never stop loving you. I will always be here for you. I can't go along with something that I think harms you. Again, mothers, it's kind of like if our children were cutting, if they were cutting and they're having cutting parties, let's say, or if they're a stripper, would we ever say, or if they're shooting up drugs, would we ever say, oh, I'm going to support you in this. I just, I love who you are. And if this is makes you happy, I'm going to do, we, we don't do it. We can't do it. So it might cause a rift. It might be that we are estranged, even if the, if the child doesn't want to still be a part of our lives, even though we've said, we'll, we'll still be a part of your life. We love you, but we're never going to be okay with something that harms you. Yeah, and um, it's, it's so important, too, if you can, to have a, a spiritual director, because, you know, I know that our family received an invitation to, a, you know, you know, same sex wedding and. I was like, oh my gosh, like, how do you handle this? I'm so, you know, I'm like the Catholic loving lady, right? And uh, in speaking with my spiritual director, it just became very clear that I had to say, no, we can't attend. And and so sometimes, um, you know, it does require some spiritual direction. It does require some courage. Um, I I do want to respect your time. And I know that we've gone over your time and I still have a lot more questions here, which I, you know, I, I'm kind of, how much, how much more time do I have? Because I don't, I've I've got one or two for sure questions I'd like to ask, but I I don't want to take advantage of your time as well. I have about 10 more minutes. I told people to get out of the house, you know, and I know they're going to be coming back. I got one upstairs who I can tell is kind of walking around. But I have, uh, he's okay. Okay. He's so, adult, but he's like, but yeah, 10, 10 minutes, maybe. Okay, and then I'm, okay, I'm happy we've, to, gone, we've gone yeah. over and I, you yeah. know, I encourage no. everyone here, like, let's invite Layla to Canada to speak. You know, I figure there's enough mother's groups, even in the Archdiocese of Toronto for you to go parish hopping. Let's, let's take a look at, uh, uh doing that because there, you know, there's questions that are coming up even in the chat that I haven't, addressed. Um, but I do want to, you know, take a look at homosexuality. And, um, and I guess it's important to distinguish between attraction and behavior, right? Can you just say a little bit about that? Oh, yes. So, so we know that temptations are not sins. 
And we know that, uh, again, that's why we put our emotions and our feelings subordinate to our intellect and our will. You can have temptations and, and those are, and they can be either temptations that are ordered, naturally ordered, like I'm going to have an affair with another man. That's, that's a bad thing, but it's still naturally ordered. Like male, female is a natural order. Um, or you could have temptations that are disordered, which is why, again, I go into order and disorder. You know, it's not ordered even to have a temptation to have a homosexual encounter. That's not ordered according to, to God's creation. However, it's still only a temptation. It's not a sin. It's not, um, anything you can necessarily even control. You just would not want to indulge those temptations either in thought, like by enjoying them or inviting them in or by obviously acting on them. Now, once you cross the line into accepting uh, the temptation and inviting it and saying, yep, I'm going to go with this, even in my mind or even in, as long as you're, again, you don't need, people don't need to make themselves crazy, but as long as they're like, nope, I don't consent to that. I don't like that thought. Um, that's one thing, but the minute that we act on it, whether in thought where we're like, yep, I like this temptation and I'm going to go with it. I'm going to indulge it or in action. Then you've crossed into the line of choice, right? Then you've made the choice. And once you make it a choice, then that's where we are moral agents. We are moral agents. We can choose to do the right thing, or we can choose to do the wrong thing. Actions, choices, thoughts that we approve of and want those are choices. That's when we get into the realm of sin. So if your child says, you know, I don't know, I think I'm gay. And, and again, I want to go back to this idea that you don't ever overreact. You don't ever, there's no need to overreact to anything. Um, and your kid will never, ever, ever approach you again. And only will go to peers or the internet or bad people. If you one time make it so awful for them that they're not going to come back. So, and if you've done it in the past, apologize, go right now and apologize to your kids. I'm sorry, I overreacted. I don't want to be that person. But the child comes to you and says, I, I think I'm gay. I don't know what to, okay, well, give him a big hug. You know, okay, tell me why you think that. Why do you think you're gay? What do you think that even means? You know, and what do you think God would want you to do in this situation? And let's talk about it. And let me get you some more information and let me help you. You want to be their ally, but not in the way the LGBTQ community considers an ally, which means affirm, affirm, affirm but you want to be their best cheerleader for what is right and what is good for them and what is ordered for them. So um, hopefully you have a good enough relationship with your child that they trust you and then they will listen to what you're saying. Um, if not, you know, you cannot, you can't be the savior to other people. Christ is the savior, right? So you might have to um, detach. If, if that child wants to go that way, you might have to detach especially if they're adults. If they're still minors, you know, heck, I'd try everything. I'd take away um, social media for a time. I would try to get to talk to a good holy priest. There's lots of things you could try to do, get them into nature and talk about other things, but, um, and teach them about the truths of the faith. But if you uh, have an adult who's going in that direction, I saw one of the questions on the side was something like that. There may come a time where you, you have to detach emotionally and say, you know, I love this child. I'm going to keep praying for this child. I'm sorry if you're hearing that ding. I don't know why this won't stop. Um, <laughs> it will not stop. And I've turned everything off. Um, oh, my goodness. But you may have to detach. And that's okay. Because I love St. Teresa of Avila. Patience obtains all things. That's like my new favorite quote. Patience obtains all things. We don't know what the future holds. But you love that child. You may not have. You may not be able to have them um, 
in your home with their same-sex partner because you may have other children and you may not want to influence them doesn't mean you don't love them. If that child makes it difficult for you and makes it seem like, well, you're hateful, you're terrible. It's like, no, I love you. You want me to respect what you're doing and what your beliefs are. I also deserve that respect. I'm Catholic. So that means I have my set of beliefs too. So let's let that respect go both ways. And you have to respect my views and my, that I hold these you know, deeply held views. And if you want me to respect that, you also have your own mind, you know, it, it can't just be this only the mom or the dad have to cave in to what the kid wants. That's called emotional blackmail. Actually, that's, that's emotional manipulation. So yeah, anyway, so, I may have gone on a tangent there. No, so. no, no, you didn't. You didn't. And uh, it's just very, very refreshing to speak with you. And I'm very grateful. Um, I guess just in closing this, you know, last question, like right now we're living in this culture where, you know, n- not only like we're expected there's all this pressure to celebrate homosexuality, right? Um, we see it in Disney. We see it in our banks. You know, these, you know, that they've got, I don't know why they have to have, you know, what do they do? Have special bank accounts? You know, they put the rainbow flag there. And, um, but, but the thing that I've been getting a lot of um, messages from Catholic moms and, I don't know how to respond sometimes. That's why I have you on the program. Um, So I'm grateful that you're here. But a lot of Catholic mothers have approached me um, because right now in Canada, in our area, there are many Catholic schools that are displaying the, you know, the, the pride flag. And so on the one hand, you know, we live in this culture and even our Catholic schools are are promoting this. What can a mother do in order, and does she have a duty to do something um, in order to kind of be a warrior? Like, did you shut your blind eye? Do you, you know, like just very recently, a YouTube video has been put out by a Catholic priest, you know, celebrating Pride Month, a Catholic priest. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, one thing that's a bit of a pit peeve of mine, or pet peeve rather, is that mothers seem to have lost their authority, you know, and their confidence. And, and can you talk a little bit more about maybe what moms need to do in these situations, especially with the flag, if their kid is going to that school, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah, I'm kind of a hardliner on that. I mean, if there's something in a school like that, I don't want my kid in that school. I mean, I, I, ugh, I, I've had to do that before. It's, it's, this is, and again, I'm so sorry about that dinging. I'm trying everything to make it stop. Um, the, uh, the thing, it, it kind of hits on maybe similar to what um, Catherine is asking in the chat. Cause she said, you know, how basically like how far do we go along with this stuff and what can we do to stop it? I'm, I'm a real hard liner. We have to save our own souls. We're responsible for our own souls before even the souls of our children. And if we go along with all of this stuff and it is how the devil is getting our children. And if we're too afraid to say anything, cause we might get in trouble or we might, 
who are we? I mean, I have to save my own soul first. Obviously, God saves my soul, but you know what I mean? I, I'm more responsible first for my own and then um, for my husband, for my children. So the the idea that we would go along even a little bit with things that are purely evil, that are actually destroying our children's souls and their ability to go to heaven. Because I think in the book we say, what is the worst thing in the world? The worst thing in the world is not getting to heaven. That's the worst thing in the world because that's irreparable. So um, I, I noticed, and again, I don't want to mean to go on a tangent. I think it's kind of related where Catherine says, you know, uh, in the chat here that she wants to leave the door open or that we need to have these dialogues, like either with our children or maybe with the school or maybe with the teacher, who knows? And a lot of people say because depression or suicide would be something that sets in. The devil always wants you to be afraid. That's his tactic now. Fear, 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 fear. And the biggest thing I tell people all the time now, fear of suicide is the biggest fear that LGBT uses now. That's how they do the court cases. They're like, the judge will say to the father, you can't use this, you can't use the right you can't call your daughter a girl anymore. You have to say she's a he because otherwise you're putting your child in danger because she's going to commit suicide. I know people in exorcisms who are people who've you know been in the prayer position of in an exorcism where that's what the, the, the devils will say. They'll pop out and they'll say, I'm going to make her commit suicide. I'm going to make her commit suicide. We cannot act on fear like that. We have to speak truth no matter what happens. No matter what happens, it's not up to us. We don't, we cannot force an outcome. We have to speak the truth in the moment. We have to do the good in the moment and let God take care of the outcomes. And maybe the outcome is that something terrible happens, but it's not going to touch our soul, right? Maybe we get thrown in jail. Maybe we get, I don't know, but it's not going to touch our soul. The worst thing is if something destroys our soul. So we can do things out of fear that our kids are going to kill themselves or that there's going to be some horrible repercussion at the school. But then we're just one step down the line of not being able to stand up to the next thing because, you know, the next thing is coming. This is not going to stop. And that's the big lies that well, we appease, we appease, we appease. We're going to appease it because um, if we just do this little bit of giving in to evil, then it'll stop it'll stop and everything will be okay. And that's a big lie because what does the devil do? Read St. Ignatius rule number 12. The devil when confronted with weakness becomes more ferocious. The devil when confronted with strength retreats. So if the devil is in front of you, you don't go looking for the devil. You're not going to seek him out. You don't engage the enemy. But if it's brought to you or your children, you don't react with weakness. You react with strength. It's like, not in my house, not in my, you know, Satan, you're not having your day. And you stand firm, you're kind, you're always kind, you're always reasonable, and you're always compassionate. But you do not say, I'm going to give in because I'm afraid. Because he will come after you the next time more ferociously. We have learned that evil is not appeased. You cannot appease the devil. He'll eat you. He'll come back and eat you alive. So... Um, yes, so, if, if, so I'm, I'm getting goosebumps here. I, I feel like I have, uh, like I've, I, I just feel like I found a very good friend in you. Thank you, because uh, we're Catholic, right? This is what we do. Like <laughs> we need to be strong for each other. We need to be. We're moms. We are mama bears. No, nobody is. You know, 
Guys, look up in the Bible. There is the, you know, the, the Maccabee mother. She tells the, her seven sons, she watches them all be martyred. And you know what she says? Do it. You got to die for God. You don't, don't humiliate and shame your whole, you know, your mother. I raised you to love God. And now you're going to save your skin. No, no, no. I want you to do the right thing, even to death so that we can all be together so that we can all be together in the end. That's a mom. I mean, I'm not that strong. I am not that strong, but she is strong. And, and that's, that's kind of what we're called to be is. And, uh, I, you know, I guess it's, it's not often I'm speechless, but I'm, I'm, I'm just very, very grateful to have uh, found you. And I, I really look forward to having you, having you in Toronto, Canada, so that, um, more moms, uh, can hear you because, uh, your voice is so, so, so incredibly needed. And I've, I have often just felt that, you know, Satan has attacked moms in a very specific way because right now mothers are sort of obsessed about, okay, I want to become fit. I want to become healthy. I want to have a beautiful Instagram account. I want to have an incredible profession. I want to have a beautiful house. I want to travel internationally. I want to have, you know, the best sex life in the world. I want to have the most wonderful car. And sometimes Satan has 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 made us so busy in doing all of these other things you know let me go get my masters and my second masters and let me that sometimes we have forgotten that we have duties as mothers and we are going to be judged based on um the effort that we had made to re- raise godly children and um, I'm, I'm going to close with this. Can you can you just make some comment about, uh, you know, I, I was looking for someone to do a little bit of writing for the ministry on the duties of a mom. And a lot of writers, good Catholic writers, are saying, don't talk to me about duties. That triggers me. Don't make me feel guilty. That triggers me. And I was like, oh, my gosh. You know, I, I was raised by a Catholic mom who said, you have a duty to make sure that there's a hot supper on the table. And um, you have a duty to bring your children to mass every Sunday. Like I was raised by a dutiful mother. Um, you know, no going to a fitness club if I didn't serve dinner. Right. Uh, so anyway, just can you make some comments on that? in closing yes yes this this hit me like a ton of bricks when i realized this that like you said we at our particular judgment when we meet god and there will be no one there to advocate for us it's just us and god one person and god when we meet god at our particular judgment we will be judged on how well we are, were obedient and attentive to the duties of our state in life. Meaning a priest will be judged on how well he was a priest on how, how well he did. Um, you know, uh, a, a, a religious sister will be judged on how well she was in obeying her rule, you know, and her order or whatever. Mothers and fathers will be judged on how they were in their vocation in their vocation. So it doesn't matter if I have a successful business and I'm all, you know, traveling and getting, I will be judged on how, how, was I a good wife? Was I a good mother? And good meaning, did I do the right things? Was I virtuous? Did I help my husband and my children get to heaven? Is that what I, um, is that what I did? 
it's like Mary, Mary's our model. She did, she lived a hidden life. Her whole life was about taking care to be a good wife and a good mother. And that's what she did. And that's how we are all judged on our state in life. So all the other stuff doesn't matter. It's all, it's, it's, it's going to mean nothing. It's going to burn away the minute that we face God. So um, people don't like to hear that because we're modern women. We don't want to hear it. But the, <laughs> that, that document, the document that I told you about, the, the truth and meaning of human sexuality that I said to print it up, and it's mentioned in the book also, so it's there, but you can get it online anywhere. Uh, the times I highlighted the words obligation and duty came up again and again and again. This is our obligation. It is our duty. And those words had better come back to our vocabulary as Catholics. I think our bishops have forgotten. Our bishops are weak. I'm sorry, Canada, America, we have very weak leaders. Um, they have forgotten their obligations and their duties to get us to heaven, to help us get to heaven. And the same with parents in the family and same with mothers. Yeah. And, you know, I, um, when my daughter was getting prepared for her first Holy Communion at school, they refused to use the word sin because they said that, you know, it's good choices and bad choices. And I said, no, 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 no. You know, a good choice and a bad choice might be between using a jacket and a sweater, but a sin offends God and leaves, you know. And so, um, you know, I just beg mothers not to be too busy to be mothers because in order to have these conversations, in order to be that coach, you know, I always say that now being a coach is a profession because most adults weren't parented. So now they need coaches. Anyway, um, I wanted to thank you. Um, I just wanted to thank you so much for your time today. We've got so many comments here in the, uh, you know, we just don't have time to answer all of these questions and all of these comments. Um, we've done our best to cover as many different, if, I encourage you, if people want to buy the book, where do they get the book? That's where, um, you know, where can they get the book? So Amazon is one place. Um, there's uh, Catholic Answers set up a website. It's madethiswaybook.com. And that way, um, I hope it still is the same in Canada, but you can get a, a 20 books for $5 each. It's, it's, it's basically at cost. It's very cheap. Um, so if there's like a, a, a mom's group or something, they can, you know, or teachers at a Catholic school need this. Teachers don't know how to answer these questions. So, um, so you can get them for as little as $5 a piece, uh, but madethiswaybook.com or Catholic Answers or Amazon is where you can get the book. Okay, so um, I, you, you can be guaranteed, Layla, that I'll be following up with you because I would, uh, I'd love to have you here in Canada. We do host an annual live Dynamic Women of Faith conference. Um, Anyway, we need to talk a little bit more about that oh, um, <laughs> at a different time. Um, would love to, to have you back. I can just see from all of the chat, uh, you know, hear all the questions that are coming up. I also wanted to just thank, publicly thank um, Tanya. She's one of our mother's group leaders and she recommended you. She, you know, she created all the questions. She did a lot of hard work to make this day happen. And, and so uh, Tanya, uh, just big shout out to you. Thank you for all of your hard work. Thank, Thank you for you the Tanya. questions. Uh, really, really appreciate it. And um, yes, so thank you.
And thank you. I thank you all. Thank you all. So we usually end with a song. I'm so glad we had this time together. Just to have a laugh or sing a song. Seems we just get started, and before you know it, comes a time we have to say so long. Carol Burnett. <laughs> That's the time I grew up in. <laughs> Same. I love Carol Burnett. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, thank you very much. Uh, love you to pieces. I would ask each of you that is here today. Number one, I'm going to ask you to do three things. Number one, pray a rosary for uh, Layla and her family today. Pray a rosary for her. Can you please pray a rosary? Number two, would you please consider, um, you know, making a donation to our ministry? We need the donations. We're so stressed. And number three, buy at least five copies of this book. I find women like to complain instead of doing something. Buy, buy a case of the books and hand them out to the school teacher, hand them out to your priest, hand them out to, you know, moms that you meet on the street, like just do something. We always make a call to action at the end of our mother's group meetups. We're not here just to have fun. We're not here just to feel good and be affirmed. I'm asking the Holy Spirit to convict you to do three things. Pray a rosary for Tanya. If you can, make a little donation or, you know, and number three, to buy, if you can't buy a case of the books, surely you can afford five of them. Come on, okay? Um, let's do something. Let's reclaim the culture. Let's reclaim our authority as a positive matriarch in our culture that isn't a wimp, that isn't afraid. I always say, remember, our blessed mother had the snake underfoot. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, we'll be in touch about having you in Canada. Okay, talk to you later, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. God bless. God Take bless. Care. Bye now.